Oh Lord, that last song was so appropriate. We ask that you would speak this morning and um, that we would listen and we would hear your call to us. Lord, I continue to pray what I've been praying. Lord, that you would cause our love to abound more and more this morning abound for you to abound for one another in this room to abound for this community and to abound for those around the world Lord help it to abound in knowledge and all discernment that we would approve what is excellent O oh Lord and that we would be filled with the fruits of of the righteousness of Christ. Let that be so, Lord. May it not just be things we think, but may it manifest in fruit, in the fruit of the Spirit, in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness toward those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question for you all. Do you care about truth or about people? Yes. 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 That's a good answer. Yes, it should be both, shouldn't it? We should love people because we love the truth, because they're created in the image of God. We've been addressing social justice, which is about truth and people about truly loving people because they bear the image of God. As I undertook this project, um, a predominant and somewhat disturbing theme emerged as I was reading all of these books and listening to all these podcasts. People were addressing these social justice issues, and when they did, they seemed to care about one or the other. Loving people or loving truth. And in very little research did ever the twain meet. Indeed, in the first two messages, I have primarily focused on one of these two things. <clears throat> we have been examining the truth about people, love, and justice. We have seen the truth that the only way that any and all people have intrinsic dignity and worth is because they have been created in the image of God. Therefore, God alone can tell us how we ought to live, ought to treat one another, and what is just when those things do not occur. We've discovered what true love and true justice, biblical love and biblical justice, and that any deviation from these biblical truths is proportionately unloving and unjust. Therefore, when we attempt to assess any social justice movement or the words or beliefs of anyone regarding social justice, we can turn to these three concepts and address their ideas or beliefs by holding them up to these biblical truths. The degree to which their ideas align with these biblical concepts of love, justice, and the Imago Dei is the degree to which we ought to agree with them, and the degree to which they deviate from biblical truth is the degree to which we should question their claims and help lead their followers to the truth. These truths and standards apply to all of humanity. 
They are the standards that everyone ought to live by because they are created in the image of God. They are how people ought to treat one another and what ought to happen when this does not happen. This is the true definition of social justice. In other words, so far this series has essentially been about the truth aspect. Truth claims, the interchange of ideas. It has been practical in the sense of equipping you with understanding these Christian truths, the ones that are at the root of all social justice issues, to assess the movements surrounding them, and to engage others concerning their ideas about social justice. After reading my first book on one of these issues that was filled with all kinds of information on one of these topics, I remember setting down the book and asking myself, asking the question, so what am I supposed to do? All this information, what am I supposed to do? After all, that is the point of information, is it not? The Imago Dei isn't just an idea. Loving your neighbors as yourselves isn't just a right saying. It isn't just a good idea to be debated or a tool to use to assess others' ideas. And justice is more than an ethical concept. We as Christians are called to do more than just affirm these truths and to use them to counteract unbiblical ideas. We are actually supposed to live these things out. To actually love people created in the image of God because of the gospel. 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We are supposed to actually love our neighbors as ourselves. Get the actually part and put that on your notes. To actually do justly. To love in deed. I kept putting in deed in my computer, but in space deed, and my computer was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's in deed, one word. No, it's not, it's in deed. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> you ever argue with your computer? Yes. You ever hit your computer? <laughs> or kick it, in my case. <laughs> Hitting it. James tells us, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So what does the word tell us to do as Christians? <clears throat> that is what this final message is about. Not just holding unbelievers and unbelieving systems accountable to God's standards, but looking in the mirror. We as Christians ought to be practicing social justice in our lives. That is, in every sphere of life, we ought to be treating people the way God intended 
for them to be treated when he made them in his image. We ought to desire that all people are treated justly, for they bear his image. And in every sphere of life in which we have influence, we ought to be using that influence so that people are treated the way God intended for them to be treated because they bear his image. Why? Because of the gospel and its impact on us. This is an outworking of the gospel in our lives. The gospel is our motivation. You see, God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the gospel that has reconciled us to God. And the gospel has and is transforming us. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In him, through the power of the gospel, we are now able to truly reflect God's righteousness and holiness in all the aspects of our lives. We are commanded to and enabled by the Holy Spirit to love God with our all and our neighbors as ourselves. Because of the gospel, because we have been made new in Christ, we are able to do this, to love God with our all and our neighbors as ourselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. <laughs> you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The fact that we are restored to God through the gospel, ought to have a direct impact on how we treat one another. See how that works? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Loving our neighbor is a major way the Christian expresses their love to God and manifests the truth of the gospel in their life. Loving our neighbor is a major way the Christian expresses their love to God and manifest the truth of the gospel in their life. Listen to what James says. He's talking about the tongue. And he says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. Oh, praise you, Lord! And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James equates 
our speech to and about others as analogous to our speech to and about God. You see that? What he is saying is, how can we praise God in one breath while despising those made in his image in another? You can't! It's an utter inconsistency. Jesus equates our treatment of others with our treatment of him. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What we do to others, we do to him. Whatever we deprive others of, we are depriving him of. If we love our neighbors as ourselves, we are loving him. And if we do not love our neighbors as ourselves, we are not loving him. As Christians, our worship of God includes how we treat others. All others. You see, for through the gospel, oh, there's that gospel word again, through the gospel, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, male or female, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Therefore, we ought to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus in our relationships with one another. And so, we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, we are to value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Because of the gospel. Because Jesus has saved us. Because the Spirit of God is renewing us in the image of Christ. So that as Jesus did not seek his own advantage, but became a servant, so we would, like Paul, try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Hmm. We have this beautiful gift, don't we? And salvation. May we not take advantage of things, but do everything that we can do so that they may be saved. Others may be saved. And also because of Christ and his gospel, we should not pursue restorative justice for ourselves. Oh, should I skip that part? For ourselves. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, kick him in the shin. <laughs> oh, wait. Turn to them the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, sue them back. Let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Well, because when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Because 
while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Because of the gospel. So let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. Because of the gospel, we ought to treat all people the way God intended for them to be treated, because he has made them all in his image. Because of the gospel, we ought to desire justice for those who bear God's image, which is everybody. Everybody say everybody. Everybody. Now, does this mean that Christians, that the church, whatever that is, has done this perfectly or even well at times? Everybody say no. The fact that Christians should love their neighbors as themselves has not kept them from failing miserably to do so in the past or in the present. The institutional church has a lot of red on its ledger. Those within its ranks or on its rolls have failed to deal with the prejudice and injustice within themselves and have become perpetrators of heinous injustices against others. And these perpetrators aren't just the quirky so-called Christians. Those crusaders, the Salem witch hunters, those Westboro Baptists that we're talking about here. For instance, for instance, the other day I was approached by someone after service who began to ask about Martin Luther. Yeah, the Martin Luther, the, the guy who was the great reformer and transformer of the church or that God used to do that. This person began to ask me, is it true that Martin Luther was? And I finished the sentence. An anti-Semite? That he was prejudiced against people who were Jewish and wrote bigoted and discriminatory things about people of that ethnicity? Yes! But that's not all, I said to this person. I then went on to say that it wasn't just Luther who had a checkered past. I said that we can throw in a good number of the reformers, yes, those people that we really think a lot of in this church and in reformed circles, Edwards, Whitfield, Owen, and more and more. Many of these men were slave owners. (laughs) They literally owned people in violation of God's law. Now, I know that we tend to associate ourselves with many of these people because we have much in common with their good doctrines. We are part of their tribe or they are a part of ours. Because of this, many of us often try to turn around and and defend their actions or to whitewash these problems by saying, well, well, they treated their slaves better than others did. Or we shift the gaze away from these faults by appealing to all the good the church has accomplished throughout the ages. And it has accomplished a lot of good. Society would be in much worse shape now 
were it not for the influence of Christians who were doers of the word in regard to the treatment of others. Indeed, we would not be discussing this culture. And yet, we must not attempt to justify evil, wrong, sin. This does not lessen the evils of those who didn't treat others justly. Nor should it. We must call sin, sin. We need to learn from the bad examples, the flaws and faults of those Christians who have gone before us so that we do not repeat their errors. And those people that I just mentioned, well, those are the super famous ones. What about all those Christians and believers since, or before? And those stories that seemingly come out week after week about modern-day Christians, pastors, apologists, theologians, leaders of entire denominations, those that perpetrate or attempt to cover up crimes against others. Add to that the numerous jerks for Jesus on social media. That's a good no, don't label them. I just labeled them. And I'm going to tell you in a few minutes not to use labels. So, But those jerks for Jesus. <laughs> those purveyors of prejudice, political dogma, division, unkindness, and multitudes of other jerkish behaviors online. Are we guilty of their sin? No, we are not guilty of their sin. They committed the sin. We did not. Simply because I associate myself with Martin Luther, because we both affirm the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, does not mean that I then need to associate with anti-Semitism. Luther was wrong. Simply because I agree with Jonathan Edwards about the doctrines of grace does not mean that I agree with him about the ideas of owning human beings. Edwards was wrong. <gasps> Okay, whoever wants to get up and walk out, now's time to do it. <laughs> Edwards was wrong. Robert Louis Dabney, some of you have heard of him, some of you have not. He was one of the greatest theologians of his generation, and he was also a white supremacist. He even used the doctrine of God's providence to defend his white supremacy. He was wrong. That is sin. Does that mean I throw out the doctrine of God's providence? No, of course not. I affirm the doctrine to the degree that it is biblical. And when he goes off into left field and throws scripture in the trash in order to justify his lifestyle, I say that is sin. That is sin. All people, all Christians have had clay feet in the past, just as we have clay feet now. We all have a multitude of flaws and weaknesses. We do some things so very well, and some things so very poorly. We cannot attempt to justify the sin of others, no matter who they are. Are. 
Do you hear that, church? No matter who they are. It is when we do this that we ourselves are in sin. I do not sin when they sin, but if I attempt to justify their sin, then I am in sin. Why do we try to defend them? I think it's because we're afraid. We're afraid that people are going to then equate us with these people. They were Christians, and look what they did. You're a Christian, so you must be just like them. Ooh, we don't like that, do we? That one kind of hurts. Or, or we're afraid that they are going, we're going to be told something to the effect that if they were wrong there, oh, look what they did, they must be wrong in everything they ever did in their entire lives and every doctrine they ever held. Do we hold this standard up to anybody else? No. Do they? No. But we're afraid that that's what's going to happen. Everyone's going to be like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? You know what the answer to the question is? About these other people? Oh, you know, Luther. Yeah, but Jesus didn't. Well, you know, Edwards. Yeah, but Jesus didn't. Well, you know, Driscoll. Yeah, but Jesus didn't. We don't put our faith in Calvin, Luther, or Edwards, Driscoll, Zacharias, or Haggard, nor do we put our faith in those we think are squeaky clean. We don't put our faith in Piper, or Sproul, or Bauckham, or Eichley, or Gross, or Fingler, or Churchill. Can I get an amen, please? Surely there are things that we are wrong about just as Calvin, Luther, and Edwards were. That we are blind to. You know the thing about blind spots? Is I can't see them. Any of you guys notice the same problem? Do you know what? Jesus didn't have any blind spots. He was never wrong. Ever. Paul said we are to follow him as he follows Christ. Follow those people as they follow Christ. We must point people to Jesus. We are not asking them to have faith in us or in Luther, but in Christ. We are not asking them to have faith in some mystical idea of the church, but in Christ. It's like I said that very first week. Our assurance is not in our reputation. It's not in a slogan. It's not in some institution. It's not in Hope Chapel. Our assurance is in Christ alone. And our model is Christ. Our model is to is to treat people the way Jesus treated people, to love the way he loved, to fulfill the commandment to love our neighbors the way he loved his neighbors, 
to live out the commands of the New Testament, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, placing others before ourselves, humbling ourselves as Christ humbled himself, treating others as more important than ourselves. That one's hard. Does anybody think that's hard? Try saying it to a room full of people. We need to treat others as more important than ourselves. Semper reformanda. Always reforming. We must always be reforming. Adjusting and changing where we find ourselves at odds with Scripture. So that in every sphere of life, we will be treating people the way God intended for them to be treated when He made them in His image. Because of the Gospel. And what he has done in us. How? How do we do this? How do we not repeat the sins of the past? How do we not carry the flaws of the previous generation into our generation and pass them down to the next generation? Well, first, it's by examining ourselves internally, our beliefs, our affections, to root out any personal wickedness. The psalmist prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous, wicked way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. This has been the impetus behind the questions that I've asked throughout this series. Those questions of self-examination. We need to be transformed personally. If we do not first deal with ourselves, then all the talk in the world will not be able to conceal our hypocrisy The first and best way to deal with injustice in society is to deal with the wickedness and injustice dwelling within our own hearts. The first and best way to deal with injustice in society is to deal with the wickedness and injustice dwelling within our own hearts. We must... Identify our own personal dispositions, attitudes, and feelings, and root them out. We have to. Don't just think, oh, I, I'm not that way. I'm great. Look at me. <laughs> I'm righteous. Christ. <laughs> Examine yourselves. Hold yourselves up against the mirror. Look in the mirror. Oh, that mirror. I hate that mirror. Pass by the mirror. Oh, look at me. Oh, there's that mirror again. Yeah. This then will begin to manifest in our actions. 
in our practices, in every sphere of life in which we have opportunity. In which we have opportunity. This is an important concept to understand the concept of opportunity. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Hmm. God has placed you where you are, that is in your sphere of influence, with what you have to impact those around you. So do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Huh. In other words, God has given you opportunities to impact others. Some of them through meeting needs, others through dialogue. Opportunities to love your neighbors. Spheres of life in which you have the ability to influence things so that people are treated the way God intended them to be treated because he has made them in his image. Because of the gospel in you. We must therefore examine our interactions with those around us. With those that we interact with on a regular basis. In our neighborhood. At our workplace and online. With our family and friendships, and within our church community. How do you speak to and about others? Whom do you speak with? How do you treat those around you? Do your actions align with your words? Are you a doer of the word and not a hearer only? How would others who interact with you describe you and the way you treat others. Ponder that one for a moment. How would others you interact with describe your care for others? Would words like love, care, compassion be used? There's an interesting survey done about others' perceptions of Christians. Among the most prevalent responses were, these are the top five or six, Christians, number one, they hate gays. Number two, they're hypocrites. Number three, they don't care about anyone but themselves. They treat unbelievers like targets rather than people. They're judgmental. And they are hyper-political. One of the most profound summaries that one person said that came into the book because it was so profound and reflected so many of these people, 4,000 people they interviewed. This person said, Christianity is filled with people who would rather repeat slogans than actually feel true compassion and care. Would that be said of you by unbelievers or believers that you engage with? Online, at work, in the neighborhood? 
those who view your life and your language from near or those on the periphery, those wallflowers that are just, oh, wow, that person, he really hates people. I get it from what he says. What are your interactions with others like? Specifically, interactions involving the issue of social justice. I've spoken a lot about engaging others with the truths of the Imago Dei, love, and justice over the past few weeks, but I've spoken very little about how, the manner in which we should engage in these conversations. Paul talks about it, though. No, Peter, it's Peter. Peter talks. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So I want to give you a handful of ways to do this in light of those books and that research that I did. First, And most importantly, treat those you engage with like people created in the image of God. Because they are! Yes, they are, all of them, every one of them, even the one who frowns at you, even the one who says mean things, they're created in the image of God too. They are not issues, nor are they objectives. Let's repeat that one, folks. They are not issues, nor are they objectives to be attained. The heart behind this is whether you truly desire to have a conversation and care about that person, or are simply trying to prove your own rightness. Sometimes I want to, I, I care so much about being right that I cease to be Christian. And we're, us Reformed people, we really like to be right really, really, really like to be right. There's nothing wrong with being right. But the way we treat people is also very, very important. Are these people bearing the Imago Dei that you, are these people bearing the Imago Dei that you are trying to love? Or are they objects or arguments you are trying to best? Are you listening to and caring for them? Or listening for places to pipe in? And just looking to get the truth proclaimed so you can dust the dust off your feet, off your sandals, and move on to the next thing, to the next person? Are you treating those you engage with with gentleness and respect? Honoring them with your attention, compassion, and time? Are you willing to give of your time and treasure to show them the love of Jesus and not just talk about the love of Jesus? There's a difference. One takes investment. One takes investment. And when you engage others in conversation about social justice issues, I have some advice. Avoid using labels. 
Labeling is rampant in virtually all of these social justice situations. Labels are a convenient way of stereotyping people, caricaturing their beliefs so that we do not have to actually engage them. Often labels are weaponized, meant as an accusation or a slur. They're woke! Such a label is certainly not a compliment in most Christian circles, but meant to stereotype someone in a slanderous sense and to dehumanize them. Yes, to dehumanize them. They're just a label now. And if they're just a label, then we can destroy it. Yes! Because I want to be right. If we can label someone, then we can dismiss and simultaneously dehumanize them. And when we label others, we assume what they believe. <laughs> Need to listen to them or their beliefs anymore, do we? Do you know what they really believe? You know, to some people, woke means that they've been awakened to or made aware of prejudice in certain segments of society. To other, it means you're progressive, intersectional, pro-LGBT liberal. Two very different ideas, aren't they? To some, the label colorblind means you show no prejudice to anyone regardless of their skin color. To others, it means you're blind to caring about people whose skin color is different from your own. Do you want to be known for that? Don't label yourself either. Ideas matter. And labels inhibit the expression of ideas. They only serve to erect walls and impede conversation. Next one. We should also clearly define the terms that are used in conversation. I mean, I, I think I've made the importance of this point clear over the past few weeks. It's imperative to define massive terms like love, like justice, Phrases like social justice. But there are many other words within these conversations that also need to be defined before they are used so that it doesn't cause friction or confusion. So that understanding is achieved, not misunderstanding. Define your terms. The most important question you can ever learn to ask is what? What do you mean by that? Is that one hard? What do you mean by that? I know it might make you seem a little ignorant. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Oh, I'd love to tell you what I mean by that. Oh, great. Then you can have a conversation, can't you? Next, avoid slogans. If you are using them in conversations regarding social justice, or their movements, stop it. Just stop it. Nothing profitable comes from using slogans. Slogans kill conversations and are volatile. Yes, you might get all of those people who agree with your slogan to puff out their chests and give you a big thumbs up emoji. They like what I said. I feel so good about myself. Or a high five. Don't try to high-five me. I'm just saying. 
<laughs> and at the same time, you get those big emojis and high fives. You alienate the very people you're supposed to be trying to love. For example, if you use a slogan like Black Lives Matter, what some people will hear is, well, that means that all lives don't matter. And if you use a slogan like all lives matter, many will hear you saying black lives, Asian lives, Jewish lives, those lives don't matter. Don't use slogans. Don't do it. All you do is, is alienate the people you're trying to reach. When you utilize slogans, are you trying to reach outsiders through them, or are you just hoping for an echo chamber to feel good about yourself? The utilization of slogans is partly because many Christians don't want to take the time to invest in people. So we play the lazy game and hurl our slogans, thanking them to make an impact, and they sure do make an impact. Just look at that quote from earlier. Christianity is filled with people who would rather repeat slogans than actually feel true compassion and care. Also, something that I frequently mentioned over the past two weeks, but I want to reiterate, is finding common ground. Find areas where you and the person you're talking to have agreement. It's vital. As you might have noticed from those survey results I mentioned earlier, Christians are known for what they're against, not what they're for. Isn't that, isn't that a problem? Well, they don't like this, and they don't like that, and they're bad, and they don't, they don't, 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 don't. Any mention of Jesus? What are we for? What are we for? Finding common concepts that we are for, like the intrinsic dignity of people, of all people, will help dispel some of these misperceptions. Remember, to the degree that what they say is in agreement with biblical concepts, to that degree we can affirm and rejoice in the common ground. On the biblical concepts. They are stepping onto our ground. I remember those pictures, Jay. You will find that you and most of those people that you are having conversation with have several ideas in common that will open up friendliness, rapport, and ability to talk about the things that you do disagree about. So find them. But loving our neighbors means more than just engaging people in dialogue. You had to go there, didn't you? Because this dialogue is still about real people who have experienced or are experiencing injustice. Are we supposed to just talk about them to others or to actually help them? To show concern or to really care for them in some perceptible way. 
I want to return to Jesus' words from Matthew 25. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or or naked and, and clothe you? And when, when or when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I, I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now, we can take Jesus' words and make them completely impractical here. Placing ourselves, placing upon ourselves totally unrealistic expectations. He's not saying each of us needs to attempt to care for every needy or vulnerable person in the world. We could literally spend every moment of our lives dedicating it to people affected by any number of injustices. I could dedicate every waking moment of my life to serving at a pro-life clinic and still millions of babies would be aborted. Every instance trying to end human trafficking and yet it would still be a $10 billion a year business. I could spend every dollar that I own feeding the homeless to the point to where I become one of them and yet thousands within our own city would still be homeless. And what about all those other causes? I am only one person. And guess what? Jesus knew that when he said these words. Even he passed by entire cities and only touched those he had opportunity to. There's that word again. He doesn't expect us to touch everyone but someone. He says, one of the least of these. One that we have an opportunity to affect. We need to remember the opportunity principle. The point is that where we do have opportunity, are we making use of that opportunity, that sphere of influence that we have been given? If you have the time 
and the ability to care for someone in situations like these, someone in need of help, then you ought to do it. That's what he's saying. You should. Again, in every sphere of life in which we have influence, opportunity, we ought to be using that influence so that people are treated the way God intended them to be treated when he created them in his image. Why? Because of the gospel in us. Because he did it for us. What are those spheres of influence in your life? Those places God has given you opportunity to touch one of the least. Are you utilizing these opportunities? I truly hope you can say yes to at least some things. If you can say yes, praise God. We should rejoice when and where it is happening. We should. We should celebrate when you see people being treated the way God intended. Recognize others when you see them doing it rightly. We can, we can all do better than we're doing. Everybody say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We could all do better. But that doesn't negate what God is already doing through us. Praise Him. Look at your life and celebrate the victories. Celebrate the times that you have, that you've touched lives, that you've impacted people. Thank you, Lord. Rejoice at the successes and then resolve to do better where you fall short of using the influence you have. The only question really left to answer at this point is whether or not you should attempt to expand that sphere of influence to encompass more people. In other words, we can all look out there and see a vast number of people who are not treated the way God intended for them to be. We saw this morning numerous families who are now grieving and heartbroken. They're out there. There's many out there. Is God calling you to do more? Maybe it means intentionally befriending someone outside of your typical circle of friends. Maybe it means becoming involved in a ministry that reaches out to certain demographics or addresses certain injustices. Maybe it means giving to a ministry or organization that engages people affected by these issues. There's all kinds of possibilities. But how do we know what God wants us to do? We bring our hearts humbly before him and ask him what he wants us to do. God, how do you want me to show your love and justice to the world? Is it more than I'm doing now? It might not be. But it's worth asking the question, isn't it? God, what do you want me to do?
how can I love people, Lord? What is the best use of my resources that you can use to impact those who are hurting? Just genuinely seek God on what he wants you to do. Why? Why? Because he's what he's done for you. Because of the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done for you. And because he's going to do it in others. And we want to see that, don't we? Not seeking our own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Love them. Show Christ to them. Proclaim Christ to them. Be Christ to them. So that they will see Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be Christ to the world. Help us to see what Jesus was like and to reflect him to all those people around us. Help us to have eyes to have the care that Jesus had, that, that care, that compassion that, that he looked upon those around him with, may that be in us. May care and compassion, love and justice be in us, so overflowing, God, that we would reach the world with the love of Christ. This is an act of our worship, God. May our worship be pleasing, a pleasing aroma to you. In Jesus' name, amen.